Have you ever been going along, following your running plan perfectly, but then you realize everything just isn't working? And it's because it is just way too hot outside. The heat can ruin an otherwise perfect plan, something that worked immaculately well for you at 60 or 70 degrees becomes next to useless at 90. And that's what this episode's all about. If you've ever struggled in the heat, and God knows I have, I lived in Tucson, Arizona for six years, currently live in Utah, like the heat's real. I know what humidity's like. I grew up in Pennsylvania. Like, heat has been part of my life. So if you've ever struggled with the heat, like I have, this episode's for you. It's all about pre-race strategies to help create heat adaptation and mid-race tactics to help you manage heat in the moment. Before we get started, a couple notes. I misspoke somewhere around like minute 36 or 37, it's like right at the end, and I said precision nutrition instead of precision hydration. Precision nutrition is a great nutrition certification that I have. Precision Hydration is a company that helps you dial in your hydration strategy for race day. One of those is probably much more useful to most people than the other, so I wanted to make sure I corrected myself. The other thing was about, I mentioned a man I knew in Tucson who lost like 12 pounds in an hour from sweat. And I've mentioned this a couple times in the past, and it finally occurred to me how messed up that number was. I got to thinking, and it turns out I remember the number very vividly because I saw the scale. What I forgot is how long a Bikram yoga class was. So here's the story. It's pretty quick. I got really into Bikram yoga for about two months in the summer in Tucson. Amusingly enough, the inside of a Bikram yoga, yoga studio is actually cooler than the outside in Tucson in the summer. It's more humid, but it's definitely cooler by like 5 to 10 degrees. And the studio where I was had a like fun challenge to see who could lose the most sweat in an hour. And one guy there was the first person I'd met who was a real super sweater. And before class, he weighed in. End of class, he weighed out. He had lost 12 pounds during class. A Bikram yoga class is 90 minutes, not an hour. So he lost 8 pounds in an hour, if, you know, we're saying it's consistent, which is still super high. That's like 3 to 4 liters of fluid he would have to replace, but it's not as high as I was saying. So I just wanted to correct that. Anyway, let's get on to the episode. Welcome to the Eat Well, Sleep Great, Run Far podcast. My name is Will Franz, and I'm here to help you go farther, faster, and longer without injuries, gut problems, or giving up your favorite foods. We are live. Thank you for sticking with me. Today we're going to talk about heat acclimation because it has just been hot for weeks and kind of miserable, and I feel like I know that we're theoretically approaching the end of summer, but I don't think that's actually true in practice. Like, I feel like we probably have at least another, like, month or so of this heat. So let's talk about heat and what you can do to at least mitigate the suffering a little bit. But before we get into that, 
I do want to say thank you for anybody who watches or listens to this. I kind of had a weird realization today that part of my job is to learn a lot of things about running and then talk to other people about them. And that is a strange thing for me that anybody would want to hear anything I say, much less about running. And for those who don't know, like I am enamored with food and cooking and chefs, and that is actually very largely how I got into the training space. I wanted to not be a chef, but still talk to people about food. And as a result, I have read that entire bookshelf is cookbooks. So I've read a lot of cookbooks. I love food. And Julia Child, if you don't know who she is, you should, said to Dory Greenspan, who's also a very famous chef, that we are so lucky to be working in food because we never stop learning. And that is actually how I feel about training, that you are, I'm so lucky to be working in the fitness space, training, running, because we never stop learning. And that is especially true of such a newer sport like Trail and Ultra, where every year we learn new stuff. And some of that is about heat. So thank you if you're listening to this and watching this. Let's get into heat. So if you are running in the heat, you should spend some time getting acclimated to it because it can really tank your performance. And we're not talking, it doesn't have to be that hot to really cause you a bunch of damage. Humans seem to perform their best right at around like 60 degrees. And when we get higher than that, it immediately starts to cause problems. So when we look at the difference between like 55 degrees and 85 degrees, that can create a 10% performance drop. And that is measured by the distance people covered in the span of 15 minutes. So yes, it was more of a sprint, it was more of a short effort, but that does actually seem to extrapolate. So if you were going for longer efforts, that seems to be more and more relevant as time goes on, especially because your core temperature is just going to keep rising to some, you know, to some end. So if 55 to 85 can create a 10% performance drop, what happens when we start to get into like 95, 105, 115? It becomes terrible. So what are we really talking about when we look at heat adaptation? First, we have acclimation versus acclimatization. You might hear both of these words. They are technically different. Nobody actually cares unless you're a scientist. Acclimation is if you live in a hot environment and you are adapting to your environment. Acclimatization is when you are trying to create these things by force, so like using a sauna. So what actually happens to your body? You see a reduced heart rate at the same like effort and temperature. So your heart rate doesn't move as much. What does that mean? It means you don't create as much lactate, so you don't have to use as much, so you don't have to clear as much. You are not going to bonk as quickly. You're not going to use quite as high a percentage of carbohydrate. All of these things that can create a or dampen your longevity on your run are less likely if you have some acclimation to heat. Your sweat rate is higher, which might seem like a weird thing if your sweat rate's already high, but you are trying to 
produce more fluid so that more evaporative cooling happens. You also start to sweat earlier. And this leads to lower body temperatures, right? Like if we're sweating, if we're seeing this evaporative cooling, if we're seeing this progress, then your body temperature is going to be lower, your heart rate will be lower, and you will do better. You'll perform better. We also see less sodium loss, so per like liter of sweat. So as you go through the summer, as you adapt to the heat, it is very likely that you might need to maybe maintain your sodium intake as you increase your fluid. And then on that note, you will need more fluid. Your sweat rate has risen. You are sweating more, not just due to the heat, but due to physiological adaptations to the heat. So you will need to probably increase your fluid while you less increase your sodium. So we need to be aware of that. Now, full heat adaptation takes maybe 7 to 14 days, depending on the person. That's really vague. So we're going to get to methods a little bit later, but the short version of that is it doesn't take that long. If you're looking at a hot race, or if we're listening to this in the future and summer's coming, then we can create some heat adaptation very quickly. So it doesn't need to be the first thing on your list to do. Now, I've been meaning to talk about this for a while, and then I kind of got distracted with other stuff, and then I kind of, and then I forgot. And so I'm sorry it's like August <laughs> as I put this out. I realize things like bad water or whatever have already passed. So a little late to the party here, but it in some ways it's for the best because I just heard a really good podcast from Corinne Malcolm on Trail Runner Nation, and she had a couple ideas I hadn't covered in the original draft of this, so maybe it all works out and we cover more stuff. Now, first, if we're looking at performing the heat, I think a lot of people get into, be it any environmental thing, and your head messes with you. So be it the heat, or the elevation, or the cold, you have this like identity as, I don't do well in this thing. And if we're looking at heat, yeah, it does make it harder. You telling yourself that you don't do well in it makes it even harder. So let's try not to get too much in your head about it. Now, once we realize that we can make adaptations and plan and create some preventative measures to the heat, that often helps. And this is why we're having this. If you go in with a plan, just like anything else, be it your hydration or your fueling or whatever, then you will often do better. And some of that comes to the fact that your, your preparation has led to better performance. And some of it just is having a plan gives you less of a mental panic. So let's create a plan for heat if we know we're going to be running in heat, because at the very least, you're going to get some placebo benefit, which is great. Now, a little caveat is that a lot of things seem to affect heat performance. There's definitely genetic variances. There are um, where you were brought up, like changes. So if you were if you were raised much like elevation, it seems like if you were raised in a very hot environment, you might adapt to it a little faster. Again, that might be placebo. You might just be used to it. 
but who knows? And there is also a, a sex variant. So women seem to take a little longer to adapt to heat than men. We're not quite sure how much, but it does seem to take a little longer. Now we're talking probably like 7 versus 10 days or like 10 versus 14 days. We're not talking like 1 versus 4 months. Right? Like it's a fairly short time span. But if you are looking at creating a heat plan and doing some climatization, then you probably want to take a little longer if you are female. Now, what are the methods we might use to create this acclimatization process? Well, anything that aggressively elevates your core body temperature is going to help. Let's start with that. So if you do runs in the heat, you will eventually acclimate to the heat. This is why, like, if you see people running in the middle of Phoenix, they probably don't need to go and step in the sauna after because they're running in a temperature that is fairly close to the sauna. So if you're already adapting naturally to your surrounding environment, you might need to do a little less work here. But this also depends where you're racing. If you're going to be racing or running in an environment that is much hotter or drier than where you are, you might want to spend some time here. So the ideal version would be a dry sauna. Now this is a sauna without, without steam. We're not putting water over coals. This is what you'll find in quite a few gyms. You'll often see this called a barrel sauna or a finish sauna. They're often like 160 plus degrees. The one I was in today was like 190. And you go in there and you spend some time in there and you will adapt to the heat. There's a bit more to that protocol because I, if you're just doing sauna and you're trying to create a like heat acclimatization in a week, you probably need to spend every day about one to two hours in there. But we can fast track that process. If you're running anyway, you just tack on 20 to 30 minutes at the end of your run because your run already elevated your internal temperature and your heart rate. And then as soon as you're done with your run, and by as soon as I mean like 20 to 30 minutes, your heart rate doesn't, or your temperature doesn't immediately plummet as soon as you finish your run. So you got like 20 to 30 minutes, get in the sauna and continue sweating. So use that kickstart that you got from exercise and then continue it in the sauna. And we're talking 20 to 30 minutes pretty much every day for about a week. Now, once we have created that adaptation or like gotten that initial phase, we want to maintain it. And you don't need to do it every day, but it looks like just like we see VO2 max start to drop off in like three to seven days, we also see heat. Like these quick adaptations also fall off fairly quickly. And you can maintain them by doing a little bit of work fairly regularly. So for sauna, it would be if it takes about a week to create that original adaptation, every three days for 20 to 30 minutes at the end of the run should maintain that adaptation. Now, if you don't have access to a sauna, understandable, a lot of gyms have them and often they're pretty cheap. So one of the gyms where I work has a dry sauna. The gym membership per month after initiation fee costs like 10 bucks. It really could be worth it for you if you have an A race coming up in the heat. 
if there's something like that near you, check it out, right? Like this is an option. You don't have to do anything else at the gym. It is a $10 sauna that creates that heat adaptation. We can also use a steam room, but that tends the humidity, the like level of humidity in there actually limits your ability to spend time in there. If you run in the humidity, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And yes, it feels hotter than like mentholated air that is often in there feels very nice. I like a steam room, <clears throat> but from a pure heat adaptation standpoint, it is not as good because it is very hard to spend as much time in there. It is also not as hot. So while it might feel hotter, you're not actually getting your core temperature up as high as quickly. We see the same thing with infrared sauna. They feel very warm. They're very good for you. They have a lot of health benefits. They're currently being studied very highly. They definitely do something on this end. Anything that raises your core temperature does something to create heat stress. But it's not as hot as a dry sauna, so it is not going to be quite as beneficial for the purpose of creating this heat acclimatization. We see a similar thing from hot baths and hot yoga. Like It is the exact same story. We don't need to dive into it super deep. But if you love Bikram yoga, great. It's an hour and a half practice. You could easily do that multiple times a week and create a heat adaptation to it. Same with a hot bath. These things clearly don't need to be 180 degrees, right? Like a bath would boil you at 180 degrees. That is the temperature where you brew green tea. Like if you've ever spilled fresh green tea on yourself, it's really hot. So, and it might burn you. You're looking more like 105, 106 for like a jacuzzi or spa or whatever we want to call it. And the reason is water is a better conductor than air of temperature. So it doesn't need to be as hot to create a very similar heat stress. But it should be somewhat uncomfortable. It shouldn't burn you as you get in. But as when you get in, those first like five, ten minutes should be a struggle. You should have to basically force your limbs under there. You'll often like find yourself in a bath, arms floating, knees coming out, something like that, because it's just too hot to maintain. This is the kind of temperature we're really looking for. Like a little rough in order to create this adaptation. You'll also see a lot of people overdressing, where you go do a workout or a run probably already in the heat and then you put on like all your winter clothes and so you'll have like a sweatshirt and a hoodie and a down jacket and then a puffy and you'll have all that on while you go run in like 90 degree temperatures and yes that will absolutely create heat adaptation it is also going to tank your workout a little bit so this is a strategy you want to use I would actually use it at the end of your workout just like you use the other one like go do your workout then throw all that stuff on and just kind of walk around in the heat. Suffer like a sauna, right? Like just treat the environment as your sauna with all these extra layers on. Otherwise, you're going to see a drop in performance in your workout, which should will negatively affect your speed and your ultimate adaptation you're trying to get from that workout. Your hot car is another version of this. And I can easily turn my car into a sauna. I don't have air conditioning, so if I need to take a phone call on my like, Bluetooth in my car, then I will have to shut all the windows, <laughs> and my car turns incredibly hot. I will get like 10 minutes down, and I'm sweating more than if I got into a sauna, 
right? Like we know that like babies and dogs and all these like more sensitive creatures can die in the car very quickly. And there's good reason. It's hot in there. So if you have a very hot environment, then when you get done with your run, you can easily just trap yourself in the car without turning the AC on and drive home. Be safe. Please don't be dumb. Don't do this if there's other people, other sensitive people in the car with you. Don't do this to such a degree that you get dizzy and woozy and crash your car. But you can boost your heat adaptation a little bit that way. And then stories like people will do anything to boost this heat adaptation. Jason Coop tells the stories of 20 years ago when people were prepping for bad water and like saunas were not very common. People would like take their... They would take the dryer and remove the vent from the wall, aim it so it plays directly in their face, and then do a bunch of, like, cycling workouts in their dryer room with the dryer pointed at their face and all the doors shut. Like, people have tried everything to create this adaptation, and technically it all works. You just need to do something that, like, fits your, but, like, fits your budget, fits your time scale, and also, like... <laughs> makes you hot, right? Like it needs to make you hot, needs to fit your budget and your time scale. Now, if we're looking at something like a sauna, it is hot. 180, 190 degrees is very hot. You might not be able to get in there for half an hour on day one. So you might need to ease into it. And this goes a little bit in timing because you don't want to start this like two weeks before your race. This is a thing you want to start during like a mild deload week probably about a month and a half out so that you're not adding a ton of extra stress to an already stressful training cycle. And then you'll boost your heat adaptation and then just try to maintain it through the rest of it. Don't start heat adaptation in the middle of your peak week for volume or intensity. We want to start it much farther out than that during a deload, knock out the seven days, and then do that three-day repeat. You can't really get like extra heat acclimation from spending more and more and more time in the heat. Once you get acclimated to a certain level of heat, you're acclimated. The things we're actually creating, as I said earlier, are like an increase in blood plasma. You can't end up with infinite blood plasma. So once you've created this adaptation, it's there. You just need to maintain it. So find a down week near the end and boost it. In fact, you can start this as early as you want. As you want, this could be somewhat of a yearly, like year-long practice for you. If you have access to a sauna, it is one of the healthiest things you can do. They've shown from studies in Finland that saunaing like four to seven times a week has an incredible, like unbelievable, thirty some percent or something effect on all-cause mortality. And then even a day a week boosts your or like drops all-cause mortality quite a bit, being in the sauna is very good for you. If you have access to one, you should probably do it anyway. And if we're using it um, for heat acclim acclimatization, then we can just do that and just maintain that on a fairly yearly basis. And then as we're going into summer, just boost it for a little bit and then continue to maintain it. I have heard from some people that... If you do two rounds of this, well-timed around your race, like one seven-day span, seven span about two months out, and then maintain, and then another seven-day span about like two to four weeks out, and then maintain, that might create 
a slightly better adaptation. I don't know why this would be. Maybe. I think what that probably does is, like, even with your three-day boosting, there's still a slight degradation. So if you boost it two months, or if you create that adaptation two months out and then maintain it, you might get, like, an extra kick if you're prepping for something like bad water. But I feel like, for most people, unless you're running in 130-degree temps, a basic 7- to 10-day like initiation period with three-day maintenance makes a ton of sense. Now, let's get past oh, prep. Right? So once we're approaching closer to race day, we have a ton of strategies that's going to be helpful, but all of them work on a couple basic principles. One is staying hydrated, which we'll get to at the end. The other one is increasing evaporation, because that is why sweating works. You create a bunch of fluid, it evaporates off you, and it works like evaporative cooling. Your body <laughs> creates a swamp cooler. And this is why humidity sucks, because it doesn't let that evaporative cooling actually work. It just traps on you, and you stay moist, and then you don't actually get any better. You're just gross. So this is why humidity is not helpful. The other way it works is temperature. Temperature gradients. So if your core is really hot and out here is really cool, then that blood is going to cycle and you're going to bring the cool blood into your core, which will help cool your core a little bit. So that is what we're really looking for anyway. And that is why we can still perform some of this stuff in the humidity because a temperature gradient idea works. It's just not going to be quite as effective as it would be if we have evaporation as well, right? So if we look at an athlete that's recently ran a race, it's a night race in Phoenix. He stepped on the start line. It was 110 degrees. Like, what do we do there? And the biggest thing was stay wet. <laughs> you need to get wet. And this is a big principle at Western states, too. If you are constantly dipping yourself in streams and pouring water over yourself, if it is a dry environment, staying wet is a really good idea because it will pull all of that heat out of you. Need to use that evaporative mechanism if we're running in the desert or, the, or like a drier environment in the summer. So stay as wet as you can. Granted, you don't want to be using a ton of the water that you need to be drinking and pouring it over yourself. But if you have extra, let's use it. This is not as good of an idea if you're running somewhere like Florida. It's just going to feel oppressive. But if we're running somewhere drier, then the evaporation idea needs to happen. Okay. And if we are running somewhere more humid, we can use that by state cold. So another idea that works across the board is ice. Put ice in your hat, put ice in your neck, put ice on the other side of your neck, try and get veins and arteries and everything we can possibly do. Whatever feels good to you. I hate stuff around my neck. There's no way I could wear one of those bandanas. Like, I, I just feel like this doesn't make me feel great, and it's myself. <laughs> There's no way that I could do that, but it helps a lot of people. Put ice in your hat, um, put ice in your bag. I heard from Corinne, she, I guess she learned this from cycling, was ice socks. If you have a uh, team then like pantyhose are fairly cheap 
get them, create little like softball size things of ice, put them in your bag, put them in your sports bra if you're a woman, and it will slowly melt, keeping you cold. And then you won't end up with anything other than like a little piece of pantyhose. And the ice is gone, right? So this is a great idea. Now, you also want to cover yourself. So aside from like putting ice everywhere and trying to keep yourself cold. Oh, addition to that, sorry. Backtrack. In addition to having ice, like all the normal places you see people put it, I think we underappreciate the ice in the hand strategy. So this skin, the glabrous skin on our hands, the stuff that doesn't grow hair, so hands, bottoms of your feet, this like area on your head and your face that doesn't grow skin, or hair rather, doesn't grow hair, that has a direct cooling mechanism to your brain. So if you're overheating and we can get those areas cold, that has an incredibly big effect compared to like, getting your left shoulder cold, right? So one thing that can be super helpful is having frozen water bottles or just like grabbing a handful of ice as you leave. And you want to get them cold. Like we should feel like if, you're, if your pacer or your crew touched your hand when that was gone, it should feel cool or cold to the touch. And that will help. That will help bring down your core temperature. In fact, it might bring it down a little too fast, but it can definitely help, especially if you're in panic mode. But doing that at every aid station, having some ice in your hands until they start to feel cool, can really help regulate your core temperature. Another thing that we can do, cover yourself, right? Like solar radiation, it just skyrockets your core temperature. If you've ever spent any time in the difference between like covered cloudy sea level and then top of an 8,000 foot peak, it can be the same temperature, it can be the same environment, except for the fact that you are that much closer to the sun. It is aggressive. It feels really oppressive. And you are much more likely to get a sunburn, which raises inflammation, which also raises your temperature. So try and not get sunburned and cover yourself from the sun. Now we could use sunscreen, which is probably not a bad idea because you know skin cancer and all sorts of things. But it isn't the best for while you're running because a lot of the chemicals in your sunscreen prevent you from sweating. And mineral sunscreen, because it actually blocks your pores, prevents you from sweating. So it can actually prevent you from being able to create that self-cooling mechanism. So use sunscreen as needed, but we want to mitigate it or minimize it as much as possible. And you're much better off getting a like, very thin white like arm sleeve that we can cover with or a hat that covers like look at people who run in look at photos of people who run in Badwater 135 they're covered head to toe in white clothing because it's reflective and that is more or less what you need to look like if you're running in the sun yes a lot of people run shirtless it feels really nice but it's probably not your best bet now what type of fabric should we, we be wearing there's some debate on this, actually. For years, we've always said, wear the tech stuff that helps evaporate faster. And there's definite truth to that. I've heard that ag very aggressively, the people do not want you to run in cotton from very good coaches. And for the most part, that tends to be true. However, if you're very hot, <laughs> a very dry environment, this might not be accurate. <clears throat> because 
cotton will actually hold the water longer, which if you have two hours between an aid station in a very hot, dry environment, that could help keep that water on you and boost that evaporative cooling a little longer. This is not a thing you should try on race day. You should try this during some of your prep. Go out, try different types of shirts, try different like kits, different gear, and see what works for you. If you're in a very humid environment, you absolutely don't want to wear that. You want the stuff that's going to evaporate as fast as possible. If you're in a cold environment, you want the stuff that's going to evaporate as fast as possible because you don't want it to like stick to your skin and increase your risk of hypothermia. However, if you're in a very hot, dry environment, you might actually want something that holds onto that water so that you can stay wet longer and get a boost of that evaporative cooling. So don't wear extra stuff. Fabric aside, we want it to be light. We want it to be simple. We want it to be easy. If you look at the things people wear when they're running Western states, like they've cut holes in it. They've cut it down. They're tri- acting like backpackers on the Appalachian Trail, minimizing everything as much as possible. So we want to keep it minimal. And if we're getting wet and putting ice on ourselves and constantly like dripping water everywhere, this can clearly cause problems. We know that wet shoes can lead to blisters and the chafing and all these things. So lube up, prep, have more lube, <laughs> make sure that you are well set up to avoid chafing. And just make sure that you're taking care of yourself and prepping accordingly because the water, the, all the liquid, all that on your body is going to keep your core temperature down. But we don't want that to cause another problem. Now, another thing that I heard from Corinne was, uh, that I hadn't heard before was menthol. So I've talked about how carbohydrates, not flavors, not sugars, not sweetness, not whatever, just in flavorless carbohydrate, swished around in your mouth and spit out can lead to a boost in performance because of these sensors in your mouth that sense carbohydrate and have a direct trigger to your brain. This is a thing we've talked about. So there are other things that have similar mechanisms, and menthol is one of them. It triggers an immediate I'm cool reaction. So when you take a mint or menthol and you have that like almost sharp bite that reduces cooling. Now, if you're near the end of your race, something like that could be really helpful. Like this is gargling and spitting out some alcohol or um, uh, mouthwash or something could be helpful, like getting that menthol reaction. But it can also reduce your sweating because it tells your body that it's cooler than it is. This is not a thing I would over leverage, but if you are near the end of the race trying to bring like down and get across that finish line, that could be a tool for you. And then don't overthink it too much. Like we can get too cold. So one thing Corinne mentioned was like an ice slurry. So if we think of like the slushy ice, the good ice, the stuff that people love to chew on, that can make everything very, like a liquid very, very cold. And I think many of us have probably had that reaction where something very cold hits the stomach and then it just doesn't feel right. It's almost like aggressively cold. It's too much. If you get that, you can also get that reaction to stop sweating as well because you'll get this trigger 
inside your stomach, that you're cooler, you're not as hot as the rest of you thinks you are. So you're probably better off just putting basic ice into water and drinking cooled down water. Finally, hydration. You need to hydrate. If our sweat rate has increased, if we've done all this heat adaptation and we have, if we're bleeding more water, we need to intake more water. So make sure that you take your sweat rate a couple times throughout the year. You should know what it looks like in winter. You should know what it looks like in a transition season. You should know ideally what it looks like in your race conditions. And if that's not feasible, we should have a few different sweat rates that can like help us create either a linear or nonlinear path to help us replicate race day. So if you sweat half a liter an hour at 30 degrees Fahrenheit, and then three quarters of a liter an hour at 60 degrees Fahrenheit, and like one liter an hour at 90 degrees Fahrenheit, great linear progression. We can figure that out. You can set up a good plan. It doesn't matter what your numbers exactly are, but we know that there's that increase and we can figure out how to make that work. If you don't know how your sweat rate changes through different temperature, you have no chance of hydrating well. You're just guessing. You're always guessing if you don't know your sweat rate. But if you're not also figuring out the changes, then you're guessing when it could really matter. Most people struggle to eat in the summer and the heat during their races because they're dehydrated. So figure out your hydration and everything else will get a little easier. As I said earlier, sodium is a little trickier to dial in. It's always trickier to dial in. There's a big spectrum. If you initially need, like the beginning of the summer, you might need a huge boost in sodium to get yourself through a couple weeks. Then as your body adapts and you start to lose less sodium with your sweat, we might need to titrate this down. And I saw this with a couple athletes this year where beginning of the summer needed to crank their sodium to keep them hydrated. And then as the, like a month later, we need to cut it back down. And this is just how the human body works. It reduces your sodium output so you don't get, so you don't lose as much as we adapt to heat and need to make sure that we're correspondingly adjusting our intake to deal with that. Now you can either get a sweat test at a lab like Precision Nutrition, or you can just keep trying a few different things and finding what works for you in your long runs. And unless you're really struggling, you should, you should definitely start with the latter. Now, I think that's about it. Make sure that your hydration's on point. Prep work. Um, if you really need it, you can prehydrate, so add some extra sodium. If you learn that your sweat rate in the summer is that of someone I used to know in Tucson where it's like 12 pounds in an hour, which is like over three, it's like three liters an hour, uh, or sorry, more than that. Uh, it's a lot. So we lost like 12 pounds in an hour in the summer in Tucson, and that is going to be really hard to recover. Impossible. It will be impossible to recover. So if you are going to be that high of a sweat rate, then you will need to intake a bunch of sodium and some carbohydrate and maybe some other stuff beforehand to help prehydrate you. And that is a much more like dialed in strategy. But if you need to go that route, message me and I'm happy to help you out. So if you have any questions, pop them in the chat. 
here for another couple seconds for the most part. Thank you for hanging around. I really appreciate it. Um, again, never, never really thought this would be where this would be and just kind of hit me today. So thanks for listening to me talk about heat and I'll be back next week with another one of these, probably about running form. I've been putting some thoughts together about that and I will get this podcast up in a couple days. Hope you have a good rest of your night and I'll be back later. See ya. Thank you for listening to the show. To be clear, I'm not a doctor nor a registered dietitian, and nothing you heard was medical advice. You should always speak with a qualified medical professional before making any changes to your training regimen. If you enjoy the podcast or found it useful, please take a couple seconds to give it a rating or share it with a friend. Every little bit helps. And if you want more of this information, please head to the Trail and Ultra Running Nutrition Group on Facebook. You'll be in good company with other like-minded people who like to do hard stuff outside.